Jesus is dead. That would have been the headline in the Jerusalem Gazette the next morning. He's dead. For thousands of years, Jewish prophets had been talking about someone who would come and rescue Israel. They called him Messiah. And when Jesus came onto the scene, there were a lot of people who thought Jesus was the one. That Jesus was Messiah. He was the rescuer that everyone was waiting for. He began to spend time in the cities and the villages. He began to do miracles. He began to show a different kind of power and presence and authority than anyone had ever shown before who claimed to be a prophet. But he didn't exactly act the way that everyone thought that he would or that he should. And it certainly didn't end the way everyone thought it should when it ended at the cross that day with his death. You see, the Jews believed that when the true Messiah did come, that he would literally rescue them. See, they had spent centuries in a mess. Their government, their society was in shambles. They had turned away from God. They had been defeated multiple times and taken captive. They had been enslaved. They were in bondage financially in every which way. And when Jesus came, the Jews who believed that he was Messiah thought that he would lead a rebellion against Rome and that he would free them. You want to talk about Israel's problems. We've got problems, don't we? We've got personal problems. We have relationships that are not what they should be. We have difficulties with our children. We have struggles with our finances. We have societal problems. Our government is all in turmoil. We face unprecedented poverty in this which is the wealthiest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world. We're not even quite sure how to take care of our own borders. We've got global problems. Genocide. Famine, war. I mean, how often do you wish that someone would come and fix your problems? Or our problems as a society? 
I mean, that would be great. And thus the confusion with Jesus. Because for Israel, instead of fixing their problems, mainly instead of leading a revolt against Rome and giving them their country back, Jesus died. He died. The plan fell apart. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. What happened? The disciples certainly didn't understand it. They're having dinner together and then he's washing their feet. I know the cultural significance of that is lost on us because we don't usually wash each other's feet. But in that culture, when you came to someone's house for dinner, they would have a servant wash your feet because it was dusty and you were probably wearing sandals and you took your shoes off when you came into someone's house. Like my motherland, Canada. You take your shoes off when you come into somebody's house. We don't do that here. But they did that there. And Jesus, who was going to be the king, who was the leader, who was Messiah, got down on his hands and knees and washed people's feet. What in the world is he doing? And then they went out in the garden to pray, and one of his own friends, Judas, betrayed him, and he was hauled off, and he was taken to a kangaroo court of sorts, and he was condemned to death. What is going on? Let's read Matthew's account of what happened next. Matthew 27, 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Everything here seems to be happening by force. The soldiers are in control. Pilate is in control. He's humiliated. He's mocked. He's beaten. Let's pick it up in verse 32. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. 
For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus was literally nailed to the cross. Probably naked. It was a horrifying way to die. If we wanted to, we could spend an hour just describing what it was like. It was so horrible. It had been it had been devised out of the depravity of the human mind probably 300 years before this happened to Jesus by the Persians as a way to torture and punish and kill the worst of their enemies. It was so horrifying that in the Roman Empire, it was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen. It was so terrible. It was a horrifying and humiliating way to die. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and rescue him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark tells us that when Jesus got to this point, he said, it is finished. Jesus endured the physical pain and suffering and torture and death of the cross. What I want you to notice here is that he also endured the spiritual pain of separation from the Father, God Why have you forsaken me? And the headline read, Jesus is dead. But how did Jesus dying fix anything? Didn't make any sense. Why didn't he lead the rebellion? Why didn't he free Israel? From their bondage, he had had certainly shown flashes of power. He took a little boy's lunch and made it enough food for thousands of people. He touched blind men and they could see. He grabbed lame men by the hand and lifted them up and they could walk. He even took Lazarus, who'd been dead for three days, and brought him back to life. And how about us? How does Jesus dying on a cross 2,000 years ago fix our problems? How does Jesus dying on a cross make my relationship with my husband, with my wife, any better? 
How does it help me figure out how to relate to my kids? How does Jesus dying on the cross fix our government? How does Jesus dying on a cross take care of world famine or genocide or war or any of those things? If he really has this power, why doesn't Jesus just fix it? What I think that we have here is a problem of perspective. I think we forget whose world this is. Who's here? Right? Who's running it? Well, we are. We're the ones who vote in our officials. We're the ones who decide what gets done and what doesn't get done. We're the one who decides how this society works. We think this is our world and that things ought to work our way and make sense to us. But this isn't our world. This is God's world. This is God's world because he created it. He controls it. It exists by him and for him. And the reality is that all of the things that we struggle with in our lives, the relationship problems, the financial problems, the societal problems, the the global problems, none of those things is our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we've ignored what God has said. Our biggest problem is that we've decided what's right and wrong instead of listening to what God has said. Our biggest problem is sin. Our biggest problem is not what's happening out there. It's not what's happening in our homes. It's not what's happening in Washington, D.C. It's not what's happening in all the capitals of all of the countries in our world. Our biggest problem is what's happening in here. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. We can talk about everything that's going on out there, and we can try to figure out who to blame for everything that's happening here. You can flick your computer on and read the headlines and say, that blasted whoever it is, fill in the blank. But the problem is here. The problem is that we've all sinned. In Romans 6.23a, Paul continues by saying, the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners, and according to God's law, we all deserve to die. It's the only way that sin can be paid for. 
Jesus is dead. Why? Because it had to be death. Death is the only way to pay for sin. It had to be death, and it had to be Jesus. Because he is the only one that has walked this earth without sin of his own. If anyone else had died, if anyone else had gone to the cross and say, there, that guy's going to die for people's sin, it wouldn't have worked because that guy would be dying simply for his own sin. He would have been paying the price for the sin that he had committed himself. If I had gone to the cross, you know what that would have been? You know what that would have been, friends? Justice because of my sin. Just like Barabbas said, I deserve to go to the cross. And so it had to be death, and it had to be Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. He paid for our sin. See, you and I have no hope of being righteous. Now, presuming that you're a human just like me and everyone else, there are times, am I right? There are times when you feel righteous. Have you ever felt that? Hmm? When you felt righteous, I'm right, right? But that's self-righteousness. That's you thinking you are doing the right thing and you are right and everyone else is wrong. That's self-righteousness. What you and I need is the righteousness of God, friends, and the only way that we can have the righteousness of God is if one who is righteous... Jesus takes our sin and pays the price for us. It had to be death, and it had to be Jesus. When Jesus died, he solved your biggest problem. I know it probably didn't make sense to them at the time, and it may not even make sense to you right now, but trust me, when Jesus died, he solved your biggest problem. So you and everyone else on earth have a choice to make. Will you trust him? Will you choose to accept his gift of life? When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, he gives you new life. And that takes care of your biggest problem, which is sin. Now, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end because when Jesus gives you new life, 
he begins to change your heart and your mind. By his power, he begins to help you to live in a different way. At the moment that Jesus Christ saves you, at the moment that you trust him for salvation, all of those other problems that we face in our lives, you know what I'm talking about, right? All of those things that weigh on your heart and mind every week and every day, those things don't immediately disappear. (laughs) But when he gives us new life, he begins to work by his power and he begins to help us to live in a different way. And as we continually allow him to work in our hearts and lives, as we continue to understand what he has done for us and allow his power to influence us, and we begin to change the way that we live, then that begins to affect our relationships. And that begins to affect the way that we think about our children and the way that we handle our finances. And that begins to affect our communities. And as our communities change, our country starts to change. And when our countries start to change, then our world starts to change. Folks, I'm not denying that there are all kinds of problems in this world. I'm not denying it for one second. But what I want you to understand is that all of those things, all of those problems and struggles in your life, in our society, in our world, are symptoms of the greatest problem that we face as human beings, and that is the sin that is in our hearts. Your heart needs to change. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Paul says this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, this is our task. Friends, if you are here this morning and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him as your Savior, you're an ambassador for Christ. You and I have a responsibility to call others to come to Christ. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to call you to be reconciled to God. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm begging you to understand that Jesus dying on the cross solves your biggest problem, which is sin. And the cross, Jesus' death, it wasn't defeat. It wasn't a plan gone wrong. In fact, it was the opposite. It was God's perfect plan accomplished. Jesus didn't go to the cross by force. Jesus went to the cross by choice. And the cross that was meant to kill him 
is actually victory for us. Friends, would you stand with us this morning as we sing this song? And as we do, I want you to do one of two things. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, then I want you to give thanks this morning like you never have before for this great gift. If you have not trusted Christ, then I implore you to open your heart and see God's love for you this morning. Only a gracious and merciful God could take a symbol of the worst kind of torture and make it our sign of victory. The cross was like the electric chair for us in this culture. And God did what he does so often. He flipped it for his glory and for our good. Symbol of death becomes our sign of victory. What will you choose? My prayer this morning is that if you have not chosen Christ, that your eyes would be open to his love and that you will choose to accept that sacrifice. So when Jesus died, he solved your biggest problem, friends. I know sometimes life looks dark, and I know sometimes it looks like there are too many problems and it can't be fixed. That's because we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at the symptoms instead of the cause. The cause is right here. It's nobody else. It's not everything that's going on around you. It's what's happening here. And God loves you more than anything else. And he wants to be your God. And he wants to save your soul. If you want to talk a little bit more about that, I'll be up here after the service. There'll be others. If you came with somebody and they invited you to come and you have questions, talk to them. Come up and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you a little bit more about that and pray with you. And if you're a Christ follower this morning, friends, go out in victory and live the way that God is calling us to live in this community. Father, thank you so much for the precious blood of Jesus Christ, for the hope of victory that we have because of the cross, for the change that he makes in our lives. Thank you for amazing grace. I pray that you will continue your work in our hearts, first of all, in our homes, in our communities, in our country, in our world, that all may know your love. Build your church as you have promised, Father. Let nothing stand in its way. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, folks. I hope you have a great week.